Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with Kansas City-based veteran jazz drummer Arnold Young. He specializes in avant jazz, and his new album, With the Rough Ted, is the 2022 CD, Fear is the Mind Killer. He has been around the Kansas City scene for the last 50 years. He studied at the UMKC Conservatory of Music and West African Percussion at UC Berkeley. He has performed with Sonny Simmons, Jocko Pistorius, Eddie Harris, Mike Dillon, Mark Sutherland, Brian Haas, and so many others. His rough Ted explores new territories and written and improvised music. He's got a rich KC tale to tell. Enjoy. Hey, how you doing? Is this Joe? Yes, it is. How are you, sir? Hey, man. How are you doing? Everything's good, man. Thanks for taking a minute out. Oh, no problem, man. I'm honored. And I, I got to thank you for sending over the music. I really, really enjoyed the album, so I appreciate it. Yeah, I think it's a pretty good balance between. I mean, there's even some tunes that have chord changes, like regular jazz. But I kind of I've been doing avant garde since '64, so you know I like I love straight ahead jazz too. I like it all, man. I can you feel know, it though. I, uh, but this band kind of features free free playing, you know, but it's structured. It's not all just aleatoric noise. Cut number four is the only one that's totally spontaneous with no plans at all or anything, you know, no head or anything, just like, because it was like dedicated to the AACM and to Ensemble Chicago and Roscoe Mitchell, and, you know, because I've been a big fan of the AACM for a long time. That's a Chicago organization. Overall, with this album, how does it feel to come out now with kind of the world opening up and things are, you know, we're in a different space? I mean, it's been really rough for musicians. Yeah, yeah. What we've gone through. How it's still it rough feel? for me. I've been battling singles for over four months now. No. It's really been a bear. I mean, I'm still playing some, but at first I couldn't even play because it was so painful, but now I'm playing. You know, I played uh, Friday before last with Brent Jester and Pete Fusanaro and Jeff Harshberger at Corbino. That was a fun gig. Yeah, we just played standards and jazz standards. So. I think it's good. It's opening up, you know. I'm mean, Obviously, what we do in, our, in the rough tet is a little off the beaten path, so I don't think there's as many opportunities for us as there would be for someone playing more normal jazz, you know. But we've got a few, we get a few things. We've played at the Blue Room twice now, and we've played at the Ship a few times and various places, you know. So you've been in the Kansas City scene for quite some time. Let's kind of step back in time. Where were you born and raised? How did, how did music become I was alive? born and raised in Paola, Kansas. My father was an Air Force bigwig, and he had transferred to England, and he got killed in a, a freak plane crash just before we were going over there. So I ended up staying in my mother's hometown of Paola, Kansas, but three days after high school, I moved to Kansas City, and that's when my life began. That's really because uh, I, I have uh, a lifelong curse and blessing called hypopituitary dwarfism. When I was young, I didn't know it yet, but I went, ended up going to the Mayo Clinic about eight times, and on, by the third time, they figured out that I had a benign tumor in my pituitary gland. So when I graduated high school, I, I was three inches shorter than the shortest girl in the class, and I looked like an eight-year-old kid. I, I went through puberty in college and after. You know, so I'm kind of a freak of nature. Maybe that's why I do freaky music. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, so like my life started when I got here because it didn't matter if I was weird. I was a jazz musician and I wasn't the only jazz musician in town anymore, you know. So what I mean, I had like- some valuable things in Paola. Like uh, my band teacher was also my, my first teacher. I only took two years of lessons the summer before my uh, fifth grade and the summer before my 
sixth grade. And then after that, I didn't have a lesson until my last semester of senior in high school. My mom started driving me to Kansas City to take lessons from a wonderful drummer, jazz drummer and classical percussionist named Charles Gray. He's deceased. But, you know, I still fondly remember all my mentors that I played with and jammed with. And, you know, the one thing about the scene now that I don't like is it's so segregated. I'm older. I, I, I came up in the mid-60s and left in 1980. Of course, the foundation was different then, and I played at the foundation with a lot of famous people and everything. And uh, I played with a lot of African-American musicians. I came up playing a lot of organ music and stuff, B3. Like this B3 at the Green Lady, but they're all white. The ones I played with were African-American, and it seemed like I got to play with a lot more African-Americans in the 60s and 70s. Now I never play with African-Americans. Of course, I lived for eight years in San Francisco and played Afrobeat with Nigerians and played all kinds of great music. But here, it's just a segregated scene. There are people that are fighting against that. I would have to say Eddie Moore is one of the greatest cats around. I really like his music, and he's a great guy. And There's so many talented musicians of both races. I've occasionally gotten to play with Charles Williams. He's a fantastic pianist. And There's so many talented cats in this town now. It's just unbelievable. It just keeps getting better and better. You know, There needs to be more places to play. That's the main thing, more places for these beautiful young people to play. You know, if I get to play some, too, that's great, you know. Yeah, so when you did move here and you started getting involved with the scene, how long did it take for you to take off, and what was it like then? Well, I, I, three days out of high school, I moved into the dorm at UMKC, and then, uh, you know, then so I went to summer school in Nepal. By the end of my freshman year, I was working a couple of nights a week. By my sophomore year, I was working three, four nights a week. Of course, back then we had this wonderful thing called Troost that was destroyed in late, 60, in summer, late summer 69 by the riots. And uh, before that, got, that happened, Troost was a, a street that had over 20 clubs that had music almost every night. And a lot of it was jazz, some of it was R&B, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. But, you know, there was just way more clubs back then, and there were a lot of clubs that I really loved that were on the African-American side of town, you might say. You know, Solar Lounge, Walter's Crescendo, these are where I played when I was, I was still a kid, really, when, when I came here, you know. I really grew up here, not in my hometown. I mean, I'm just amazed by the uh, amount of talent in this town. It's just unbelievable. It's just, um, you know, it's good. I mean, Bobby did it. Bobby came back, and that changed everything, you know? Absolutely. I agree. I agree. So early on in your life, who were some influences, some heavy influences? Well, uh, when I moved into the dormitory in those days, this was the summer of 63, in those days, people, most of the people that went to UMKC lived in Kansas City. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a tenth of the size it is now. And so there was hardly anyone in the dorm. There was some guy up on the fourth floor, and I was on the second floor. And as soon as there was this hirsute, heavy set guy on the first floor, and as soon as he found out I was going to the conservatory and that I was into jazz, he glommed on to me. He was a bass player from New York named Richard Youngstein, and he was my teacher. He made me go back and listen to Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong. He made me listen to Lester Young until I thought I was going to puke, and he made me listen. I got into Monk, and then he hit me, he hit me with all the bebop. Then he hit me with all my guard, too. I started hearing Ornette in 1963. You know, I started, and Ornette made sense to me for some reason. Like, I love Train. I love Train probably more than anything, but it took me a while to hear what Train was doing. I, I couldn't get it at first, you know. I wasn't used to modern jazz. When I was in high school, I wanted to be a 
flashy big band drummer. You know, I like I, I like Duke Ellington and Count Basie and Stan Kenton, and you know that's what I wanted to do. But I'm superbly unfit for that. I work way better in a small group because of the dynamic of interplay, and uh, you know it just works better for me. I think. So Richard Youngstein, uh, Charles yeah. Gray, my teacher, he was a great Kansas City drummer. He moved to Mexico, oh, about 18 years ago, and he passed a few years ago. All my mentors are gone now. Now I have to be the mentor. And that's why I love some of the young musicians I'm getting to play with and jam with. They're really, you know, they're just great, man. The, the hallmark of you has been longevity. What what has been the key to your longevity and your love for this? I quit smoking cigarettes 26 years ago in January of 96. Uh, I eat some organic food. Not all my diet is that great, but I try to have a good diet. Keep Playing drums keeps you young. The music keeps you young. I don't know. I mean, I'm a freak of nature. You know, I, 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 my hair isn't, still isn't gray, and I'm almost 77 years old. That's a little weird. You know, Tim Brewer, yeah. I got to jam with him at Brad Gregory's place the other day. Fantastic. We used to be really tight in the late 70s, and I hardly ever get to play with him now. But, uh, you know, he still has hair that isn't great, but his beard is gray. So figure that one out. Yeah, right. I just think, you know, you got to take you got to take care of yourself. You know, that's what you got to do. I mean, I fell into a real bad way in the late 60s and early 70s, and I used narcotics, but... I figured I woke up and I got out of that. You know, I got I got off the slippery slope. Um, you know, I've been taking care of myself ever since, as well as I can. You know, try because I want to play as long as I can. You know, if I ever yeah. feel like I, I can't play well anymore, I'm not going to go out there and play. I'll just concentrate on my other things like writing and art. So you know, the one thing that I've I've read and and looking into your history is that you know you've re- you you're such a prominent piece of this. Seen, but you've been kind of on the underground, so to speak, of things. How how yeah. did this happen? At, 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 what's your story? Well, partly because that? in in nineteen sixty, the fall of sixty four, the bass player I told you and a, a piano player came up my stairs. I finally moved out of the dorm and into a rented room. They came up and said, "You got to come with us right now. We have to make a recording." And our drummer fell down the sta- fire escape and broke his leg. And I don't think he could have done it because he was a good straight-ahead jazz drummer. He didn't have much imagination. So we went down to this archaic game and recording studio down at Paseo and Linwood and um, in the back of the, I think it's the Masonic Temple or whatever it is. We we played like a, a monk tune, then we played a bird tune. And I said, what's the next tune? And they said, God's Museum. I go, man, I don't know that one. And they said, we're going to make it up as we go along. And I thought about that for a tenth of a second. I went, sure. And it always made sense to me. Even when I was in high school, I would ask my band teachers and different people, why does everything I play have to be over a preset form? You know, can I just play, you know? No, it's the only way to make sense of music. Well, they were probably wrong. I mean, you can, both ways work. It's not an either-or situation for me with avant-garde. I just think that anywhere else you go, it's part of the jazz scene. It's part of the, the history and legacy of this music. And uh, it's overlooked in this town. It's just overlooked, and I guess maybe that's why I've been overlooked. Plus, you know, I don't know. Who knows, man? I'm not perfect, that's for sure. I got off to a, I got a bad reputation by the late 60s, and then, you know, since then, I'm trying to overcorrect. That's why I get to every gig an hour ahead, because I'm still overcorrecting from when I was late and spaced out, you know, so. 
Absolutely. It only takes a couple of years to ruin your life, and you spend the rest of it trying to put it back together. What do you like the best about Kansas City? Oh, man, that's a hard one. Well, a lot of my friends, I have young friends, and I have friends that are my age, you know, but I end up seeing... I'm I'm really happy that I'm able to make some good young friends. And a lot of the people I hang with are way younger than me. It just worked out that way. I guess I'm young at heart or something. You know, but I love Stan Kesser. I love all the great players here. You know, uh, Rod Fleeman, man. You know, all the so many great players here, young and old. I mean, Brant Chester, he's amazing. Pete Sonaro blows my mind. He's so bad, you know. And, uh, you know, it's so great to be able to play with those young people because then I, I give them my energy and they give me their youth. There's just so many great musicians. I don't know. I guess I don't know what I like about Kansas City. It's just that I've lived here most of my life. I didn't want to come back here. I never wanted to leave San Francisco. I was very successful out there musically. Uh, but I had to come back here to take care of my mother. So that's what I did. And then I'm kind of stuck here now. That's not so bad. I like it. It's nice. Yeah. It's a great town, you know. It's livable, man. You know, I, I'm a jazz musician. I'm not rich, so I can afford to live here, you know. Yeah. What What was the first live jazz show that you ever saw that really blew you away? Uh, well, when I was 14, I forced my mother to take me to 63rd and Truth, a new shopping center it opened called The Landing. It's still there. But anyway, there was a music store that had a grand opening, and they brought in Duke Ellington. And so I got to hear Duke Ellington 12 times, and he still had Harry Carney and Johnny Hodges and all those cats. And that's one of the major experiences of my life. And Count Basie. And before that, I said in high school, I went to two of these things called Stan Kenton Clinics. Uh, they were uh, clinics for high school-aged uh, jazz players. And, uh, you know, um, man, I got to hear Stan Kenton a lot and a bunch of Cannonball Adderley, I didn't quite understand. When I was in high school, I wasn't, I couldn't quite get to bebop and modern jazz yet. You know, it just sounded like I couldn't, you know how it is. You have to learn how to follow it. Then once you learn how to follow it, I, I've spent a lot of time learning to listen without being analytical. Most jazz musicians, if they listen, they go, oh yeah, he's doing that or he's doing that. I don't listen that way. I try to listen. I might not even recognize who I'm listening to because I'm not listening to it in an analytical way. And I had to teach myself to undo that way of listening so I could hear music sort of like regular folks, you know, non-musicians hear it, you know? I don't know. I've studied yeah. a lot of different kinds of music. I mean, there's a lot of jazz drummers in this town that just blow me to pieces, and there's no doubt about that. You know, guys like Brian Stever and John Kazuma, they're much better jazz drummers than I am, but I bet they couldn't play a reggae gig like me. I mean, I played Afrobeat with Nigerians in San Francisco. I never played a straight-ahead jazz gig for eight years. I played with a master avant-garde man named Sonny Simmons for over two years. That was a great experience. I always liked his music, and uh, he... I talked to him about five weeks before he passed. So I got a question about the Avon way. You know, there's a lot of people out there in jazz that may not get into it or they're interested in it or people that don't know that that's going to be the show, but they hear it and they're trying to wrap their heads around it. How, how would you, how do you wrap your head around the, the, the Avon jazz? Well, the way I think of it in a lot of ways, if you go back to the very early stuff, the very early avant-garde, you know, I'm by the late 50s, the musicians were so good at playing bebop at amazing tempos and never, you know, after a while, some of them felt like, I kind of feel like I'm running the high hurdles. Everything I play has to fit this form. And so people uh, started, you know, like Ornette. 
I mean, I think Bird's revolution caught on because it was new ways to play and new chords superimpositions over songs everybody already knew. Ornette's the opposite. He took the rug away and said, make it on your own, you know, and not everyone could do that or get to that. And I understand that, but it's part of my music and I can't let it go because I believe in it, you know. I mean, I, I like I say, I like the whole spectrum, man. I don't care if it's Lester Young or, or Lester Bowie. I like it, you know. I love it. I love jazz and music, music in general, but classical music too. We got a good orchestra here now. That's really neat. So you have a new album out. The world's opening up. What's the future look like for you? I'm not sure at this point. <laughs> I'm just gonna play it by <laughs> ear. I'm gonna try to see if I can book some gigs for the Rough Tet. It hasn't been easy. And uh, we don't play that often. And I feel bad because the musicians I have, Quinn Wallace plays trumpet and uh, electronic music, and he also contributes compositions. Jacob Schwartzberg plays saxophones, and uh, he's just great. He's fantastic. Both of these guys graduated in 2021 from Bobby Watson's jazz program at UMKC. And uh, my bass player, John Nichols, played with me the first long-term avant-garde jazz project in Kansas City was Ad for a Dream from uh, about three years, starting around 1970. I couldn't get any jazz players to play that kind of music, so what I did was pervert R&B musicians that I hung out with all the time. And first I played them hard bop. First I played them stuff, funky stuff like, you know, Sidewonder by uh, Lee Morgan or something like that. Then I hit them with hard bop. Then I hit them with Train. Then I hit them with everything, Sun Ra, Ornette, everything, you know. And they loved it, and we played free. You know, we had everything from totally written out to totally improvised pieces, and we existed outside the Kansas City jazz scene. On a much slower level, we paralleled the loft jazz scene in New York and the AACM in Chicago and the Black Artist Group in St. Louis, except we were white, you know? I mean, we had our own performance space, you know, with a... Uh, we put in an arch foam rubber ceiling. We put in egg crates on the walls. We got 60 seats out of an old theater. And John Nichols was the bassist in that for a dream. And now it's over 50 years later and we're playing again. So that's pretty rewarding too. So the band's kind of a blend of two old guys and two young guys. Which, you know, I don't care about people's age. I've never judged people on age. A person is a person, you know. If they're doing something cool, that's great. I don't care if they're 80 or 8, you know. I love yeah. young people, though. Young people are fun to be around. A lot of my friends my age, they won't ever go out of the house. They'll never yeah. come to my gig. The young kids come out to my gig, but my, yeah. my friends my age won't leave the house. You know, that's, well, you can understand that with the COVID and everything. That's obvious that it's definitely curtailed. Even to this date, it's still, I think, affecting people in a lot of ways, you know. So everyone has a perception of you, your family, your friends, your fans. But ultimately, you live your life. What's your perception of you? Who do you think you are? I think I'm someone in need of work. I need, I need to work on myself. I need to get better at living. And I try to, try to preserve my health as long as possible. I see myself as a creative person. You know, I mean, I made art. I'm, I make art. I'm not a great artist. I'm a much better musician than I am an artist, and I'm writing. I've been writing for 20 years. I haven't published anything yet, but I got a new book that I really like that, that I'm going to – I've written under my own name. The others are all uh, short stories and stuff, and they're pen names, but this is a story of my life. It's called Close Encounters of the Jazz Kind, and it's not quite done yet. I've been working on it for two years, and it's just about all these different episodes like – 
you know, on my first trip to New York, I went to Slugs and, and to hear Lee Morgan. He came over and sat with me for a half an hour on the break. You know, that's in there. The time I, uh, you know, I, I just met and played with, like when I met Jaco Pastorius in 1970. He wasn't world famous yet. He was just Florida famous. You know, I've been able to play and jam with a lot of great musicians, and that's what the book's about. Our old man, yeah. hey, thank you for opening up with me here at the show. I really I'm sure I talk much. too much as usual. No. No, no, no. No, you were you're wonderful, man. You you opened everything up that I was I was wanting to ask you. So, thank you. Good luck. Well, with I'm you. honored that you like the music and I'm honored to be on your show, man. I think oh, you're doing yeah. a great thing for jazz in Kansas City. Thanks for listening and tuning into another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest minds and players in Kansas City and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Arnold for his time, music, and story. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes store. Visit Neon Jazz at YouTube.com. And for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.